Dr. Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And uh, this podcast examines three women who participated in the American Revolution as soldiers, either temporarily or through deception enlisting as men. Today I'm interviewing Lindsay Reimpold, who teaches uh, Texas history at Eastwood Middle School in El Paso. Lindsay is a recent graduate of the master's program at UTEP, where she researched women during the American Revolution, the Civil War, and women in other contexts. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So I guess to start out, um, you know, we've long recognized how women have been impacted by war. And we often forget, though, that they have been on the battlefield, not just stuck on the home front. And so I'm wondering, how do we typically see women in the American Revolution? Um, is it like a, we see them more passively um, being involved or, um, yeah, what role do we see them in? If you see them at all, it is very passive. Uh, we don't really hear about women on the battlefield hardly ever. I mean, we hear about Martha Washington who followed George Washington around, but, you know, she didn't go near the battlefields. Um, there are women that would go onto the battlefield and they would bring water to the soldiers or they would follow the, their husband's troops uh, and do duties for them, such as, you know, laundry, cooking, sewing, some nursing tasks. But that's about as much as you hear. Otherwise, you don't really hear about women at all. You're lucky to hear about the Daughters of Liberty who would go and make, you know, cloth, paper, anything that was being boycotted so that way they could, you know, contribute to those boycotts. That's really it. Otherwise, as far as we're taught in, in grade school, women stayed at home, took care of the families, the kids, maybe the husband's businesses, and that's about it. Yeah, it seems like... Uh... We remember, yeah, the Daughters of Liberty or the, the ladies of Edenton uh, who did the boycott of, of tea in the eight, or 1760s. And, you, you know, we hear all about um, Abigail Adams and her famous set of letters with her husband. Um, but, and, and I guess Betsy Ross, you know, making the flag. But everything is such a traditional domestic role. Um, and I'm wondering if, if, in your opinion, if that's one of the reasons why we don't talk about women in battles, is it just doesn't fit with the image, particularly at the time. I think that's very much how it is, because even today, what you learn about is you hear about the men and their courage and their val valor and, you know, their actions and how they were so intelligent and in leading their strategies or how their strategies failed or, you know, heroic endeavors. Uh, women at the time, you know, you're, they had to sit back, take that, you know, genteel femininity role where they weren't welcome in those kind of roles, you know. And so even today, you don't really hear about it. Yeah, I'm also was kind of wondering if, um, you know, it's clearly gender is so important in this discussion, but also is it economic status? I mean, Martha Washington can afford to stay in a really nice headquarters um, and live the good life um, close to a battlefield. But usually she was just there during encampments, you know, during the off times. Or we think of Abigail Adams or uh, Mercy Otis Warren, you know, people of such high status that they can afford to behave in a certain way, while most of the women that actually follow their husbands to the battlefield are of a, um, a lower economic status. Um, yeah. So I know you have researched um, 
the ways women, you know, assisted or ser- uh, served in the Continental Army. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Elizabeth Zane and what was her role in the revolution? Elizabeth Zane is kind of a interesting girl. So her older brothers helped to establish the town of Wheeling, which is now located, I think it's in the western part of West Virginia. Um, so they helped establish it. And she was born and raised and then she was sent off. I think they lived in Philadelphia for, so she could go to school. And then they moved back to Wheeling. And during this time, during this uh, the event of the attack of for, for Henry, sorry, she was only like 16 years old. And so during this time, uh, the British had allied with other Native American tribes like the Miami, the Wyandotte, the Delaware, the Shawnee to attack Fort Henry, to attack the town of Wheeling. And so they all kind of rushed into the fort to take shelter and because that's where they had all their ammunition and everything. Um, during the battle, I think it was at the beginning of the second day, they had realized that their ammunition stores were running low. They didn't have enough gunpowder to last. Well, her brother, Colonel Ebenezer Zane, about a hundred yards away from the fort had his own cabin that was filled and stockpiled with guns and ammunition and everything. And so she was chosen. We're not really sure how, because there's no written record on how she was chosen, whether it was just because the men were needed to fight or she was a fast runner or because she was a, you know, she was a girl. So maybe she wouldn't be attacked, but somehow she was chosen to run all the way to her brother's cabin, bring back gunpowder and back to the fort. And so she did, they opened up the doors and she took off running and she made it to Colonel Zane's cabin and she told him all about what was going on. And so she made like a little pouch with her dress and they poured a keg of gunpowder into it and then she took off running back when she was running to the cabin the british soldiers and the native americans they had no idea what she was doing so they didn't fire on her but when she was running back she was clutching that her dress to her so they figured she was bringing back something to help so they started firing on her and so she's running all the way back through bullets through you know being fired upon and there's they actually went through like her petticoat so they got really close to her but she managed to get back to the fort safely unharmed and because of that the fort was able to continue the fight into the next day when the british actually decided to sound the surrender and left and then reinforcements from the continental army showed up and so her actions, even though she was only 16 years old and she didn't actively fight anybody, she didn't, you know, attack anybody or anything like that, but her actions of just her bravery, bringing that gunpowder in and facing that challenge really helped that whole town survive. Yeah, I was thinking, so the other two women we're going to talk about sort of plan to join, you know, be a participant, but, but Zane is, you know, it's not premeditated. It's like an emergency that she's called to. And so do yeah. you think, does that affect how she's remembered and celebrated? Cause I mean, it seems like she's still kind of doing the feminine thing and just, yeah, yeah. It's still, she's still kind of pigeonholed into that whole idea of femininity. She was called on to help. And so she did it. But other than that, she's a very obscure person. I had never heard about her until I started researching this topic. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, and so I'd never heard about her or any of the women that we're going to be talking about. And so I found it, like, really kind of, you know, sad that women aren't taught this. 
you know, that girls aren't taught this in school. You know, we hear about George Washington and, you know, we, you know, all these notable figures, but not women. (laughs) They're not really in there. And I mean, just like, um, now I'm going to go off on a tangent, but, you know, the um, black abolitionists during the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s took a really proactive um, job of, of, of telling African-American history. And so there's a book that comes out in the 1850s on um, colored patriots of the revolution. I think that's the name of it. Um, and this idea that people take pride if they have their own history. And it's sort of unfortunate that women at that early time didn't follow suit. I mean, we know that there's some women uh, writing about like the Queens of England and a little bit, but it's not really until the late 1800s that we see women first writing extensively about women. And so I think that probably says a lot about how they're, how they're lost. Um, So as you already, as we've already talked about Washington, Martha Washington you know, makes the choice to follow her husband. And uh, a lot of the the wives of officers do this, um, you know, especially when they're in, in the like winter encampment and things. Um, but sort of uh, working class women, you know, um, non-elite women often follow their, their husbands as well. And, um, and so the, the second woman we're going to talk about uh, does that she makes the the decision to to participate by by providing aid to the military in traditional um, kind of gendered work ways. And so, what can you tell me about Margaret Cochran Corbin? So, Margaret, there's not a lot written about her, and her story is kind of mixed in with other women known as Molly Pitcher. And so Molly Pitchers are, is just the name for women who would serve water to soldiers on the battlefield because, you know, these battles can last for hours and they need water too. So she was kind of lumped in with a lot of those other women. So trying to find her was a little difficult. But for her, her she was married to her husband, John, um, at the beginning of the war, and he reenlisted into a regiment and she followed him around. She actually accompanied him onto the battlefield at Fort Washington. Now that battle, it was about um, the Hessians were trying to take their ships up through the Hudson and the Continental Army was trying to prevent that. And so they were attacking the the army. And so her husband was shot while manning a cannon and she was nearby and she heard his superiors shout that since there was nobody there to take up his position after he was killed, that they were going to remove the cannon so that they didn't lose it. She took it upon herself to go ahead and continue to load that cannon and fire fire it until she was actually wounded. Um, And because of that, we know about her because she actually received a pension. She's on the invalid rolls for that regiment. And she's actually listed as being discharged from the army in 1783. Oh, wow. And so what year was the battle she was in? I mean, it was Um, well before 83. Yeah. I want, I want to say it was 1779. Let's see. 1778 or 1779, something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, she she requested for a pension because of the fact that her injury led to her being disabled. 
And in 83, I want to say it was in 83 that that pension went through and she was listed on the regiment, on the invalid list for the regiment. Okay. That makes sense since the war, even though the last battle, a significant battle is 1781 with Yorktown, 83 would be when the treaty signed. And so waiting until then to do a pension makes sense. Did she receive a pension? I don't know if you would know this, um, for the death of her husband. I believe she did. She did. She got the pension for herself, for her injury, and then she got a separate one for her husband. That's pretty amazing. Um, so of the, of the women that you've talked about, um, Deborah Sampson is probably the best known. And, uh, when I was a little girl, she's the only one I, I knew about. And I had a big coloring book. And I remember it was Women of the Revolution. And so I colored a picture of her. But the rest of the women were Martha Washington, Dolly Madison, and, and there was a Molly Pitcher, but there was no description of who that person actually was. But Deborah Sampson, I think, is really um, interesting. And I was wondering if you could explain why she's so significant to this story. Of all the women that we kind of hear about, Deborah Sampson is the one woman that she sets out to join the army. She tried twice. It was the second time that she actually was able to join it. The first time she tried, she was staying with a friend. She borrowed, she kind of stole some male clothing, got herself dressed and went and enlisted. But for some reason, there was some kind of discrepancy because she was identified as a woman and... Basically, her contract was thrown out. But about, but sometime later, I think was, gosh, I don't want to say a wrong date or anything, but it was a little bit later that she decided that she was going to try it again. But this time she traveled a little further south so that way she couldn't be identified because part of the way that she was identified was the way she was writing her name. The, there was a woman there that Deborah had taught her son and she had recognized the way that she would write. And so that was actually one of the ways she was identified first. But she went and she re-enlisted. This time uh, she used the name Robert Shirtliff. She served, uh, all the texts that I've read say that she served for about three years. She, there are some that, some texts that say that she was there at Saratoga uh, or yeah, at Saratoga. Uh, she was also at several other battles. She was injured uh, once by being slashed on the face by a British soldier and she was also shot in the hip and during when she was getting treated for those injuries she didn't tell anybody about the musket balls in her hip because she was afraid that she would be identified so she told them about her face and they stitched it up and took care of her and then on her way out she stole some surgical equipment went and hid and pulled out kind of dug out one of the musket balls herself which is amazing (laughs) She couldn't get the second one out because it was just too deep. And so she she lived with it for the rest of her life. It caused her a lot of pain and discomfort, but she lived with it for the rest of her life. She continued to fight through this um, for a while longer. And it wasn't until later that she was, her unit was sent to go and quell some protests. And one of the great things about her, she wasn't just like a normal soldier. She had showed herself to be such an excellent soldier. She was placed in that front part of the army that leads everybody. And so like she was known to be this fantastic soldier, but it was during this other uh, 
putting down these protests that she was actually dis- she was wounded, taken back to this doctor's office where he had to, she was unconscious. So he had to take off her shirt and he, she noticed, uh, they noticed that she, her chest was bound. And so that's how she was actually discovered. Wow. So um, after this second discovery, um, did they make her leave the military? What, what happened to her? That is a little bit more hazy. It's kind of hard to find what exactly happened. She was eventually discharged. Um, there's some different stories on how it got out. That information got out. One is that he went and told uh, Colonel Pat- Patterson right away. Another is that um, the nurses at the doctor's office were paying the dashing, handsome Robert Shirtlift so much attention that he had to tell them she's a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it got out from there. So there's some different stories. But she was uh, honorably discharged and she was able to leave. There was no charges pressed or anything because that was a fear at that time is that if you're a woman and you, you know, dress up as a man and infiltrate the army, you could be charged um, and, you know, imprisoned for a time. But she was given an honorable discharge for her service and she went off and she got married and she had children. And part of the reason why we know her so well is because her husband was disabled, and so he couldn't really contribute to the finances for the family. So she had applied for a pension, which while she was waiting on, it would later be approved. But while she was waiting on it, she um, went on to the to do these speaking tours. And she would stand on stage, and she would start off dressed as herself, as Deborah Sampson Gannett. And she would tell about her story. And throughout the um, the two throughout the speaking engagement, she would get dressed into Robert Shirtliff and perform certain um, actions on stage. So she would do marching. She would load her musket, and while telling her story. And during the speaking tours, when she was actually awarded that pension, but. Then to add on top of it, we have Paul Revere, who we all know for his you know, midnight ride. And he actually wrote to one of the representatives in Massachusetts asking for her to receive a larger pension because of her injuries and her um, honorable actions. So it, she's kind of an amazing person. She set off to join the military, to be a soldier, and she succeeded. And, you know, she's probably the first woman, one of the first women that we hear of in the United States that to do that. And it's not, you know, until almost 200 years later where women are actually welcome to come to be in combat positions. Yeah. It's, um, it's really amazing because, you know, the first, you know, Zane is just taking over by, um, an emergency sort of a one-off I'm going to do this, but then nothing else. And then Corbin also, I mean, she might be at the battlefield, but it's once again an emergency that calls her to, to you know, manage the cannon. But Samson, I mean, sets out twice to, to be a soldier and, and join the military. And I do. I've always found it fascinating. It's uh, you know, women. There were such sanctions against them speaking in public. Um, oftentimes, uh, credit is given to uh, Maria Stewart and. 1831, um, a woman of color, an abolitionist, for being the first woman to speak in front of a mixed male-female audience. Um, but Samson's doing this you know, a good 20 years before. And yeah. so, you know, once again, it's kind of like, why don't we talk about that? Why don't we remember that? Yeah. 
And I had never heard about her before. I think it was actually drunk history that I learned about her first. And I was like, what? <laughs> How is that possible that we don't know about this woman? And, which is just, it's so unfortunate that these women aren't taught. But it all goes kind of, it's fighting against that male-dominated history that is so prevalent in society. Yeah. I mean, even even when we talk about women, we tend to pigeonhole them into such you know, culturally sanctioned feminine roles that mm-hmm. certain types of women then are always left out of the story. Um, I don't know if if you have an answer to this, but I'm I'm kind of curious. You know, over time, how how were the women remembered? Like in terms of, um, you know, is this what defined Betty Zane or Margaret Corbin? You know, their time in the you know these singular events. Um, were they celebrated, you know, in their communities afterwards? Or or was it just kind of like never recognized? So Betty Zane is kind of an interesting case. Um, later in the, I want to say around the 1830s, uh, there's some, there starts to be some question is if it was actually her that made that run to get the ammunition. Um, a woman came forward um, and said that, no, it was this other woman. I can't remember her name. It was Mary something. But that other woman, the Mary something, her grandson actually came out and was like, no, 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 no. My grandmother says it was never her. It was Betty Zane. It was Elizabeth mm-hmm. Zane. And so there's there starts to be a little bit that's written about her during the 1830s. And then it drops off until the early 1900s. And then again, there's a little bit written about her and then it drops off again. So we don't really learn anything about her. She's, she just, she doesn't become notorious. She's not famous. You know, she lives a quiet, as far as we know, she lived a quiet life, you know, got married, had kids, that kind of thing. Margaret Corbin, as far as I read, she, I don't think she ever remarried. She never had kids other than getting her pension. She wasn't really known for anything else. And Deborah Sampson, she, you know, she got, of course, got married, had kids and she had grandkids and she died when she was in her sixties, surrounded by her family. Um, her story was carried on for a while and there's, uh, certain monuments and there's a statue of her, particularly with her dressed in a dress, but also has like the soldier, um, jacket and then a musket to commemorate her but all it says is her name and when she was born and when she died and that was it so yeah until the 1900s there's they're not really really written about and shared about but at least samson got an episode of drunk history so yes she did (laughs) made it yes um so one of the things i i ask everyone um i interview is to sort of imagine that the people they're talking about, um, you know, so we can look at them in a 21st century way, have an Instagram account. And how might they, you know, what hashtags would they use to describe themselves if they had this tech in in the 1700s? So I'm curious, like what might have uh, Betty Zane have, have used? So I think Betty Zane and hashtags, and I don't know why this pops into my head, but it's the first thing that pops into my head, you know, the story of the gingerbread man. And so I think like hashtag run, run as fast as you can. Like, I don't know why, but that pops in my head. Um, Or uh, hashtag gunpowder hero. That would be cool. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, How about Margaret Corbin? 
Um, I think hers would be hashtag just filling in. <laughs> you know, she was just filling in for her husband. So I think it would be just filling in. Um, yeah, that's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. But, you know, she's not transgressing mm-hmm. boundaries as much as I'm I'm the deputy husband. I'm filling in and, and doing yeah. what's called for. Yeah. Um, I think Deborah Sampson, though, hers would be a little bit more patriotic. I think hers would be hashtag for my country. But she was, you know, she was very very adamant about fighting for her country and serving her country. And that was the way that she chose. So I think hers would be for my country. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, You know, I'm so guilty myself when I, when I teach about the American revolution, I do talk about, you know, Adams. I do talk about the boycotts. Um, And I usually mention um, in passing Deborah Sampson, but I, I don't emphasize the fact that women had so many different roles. So being able to listen to this, uh, I think I think my students will really profit. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I think mine will too. I, I, anytime I read stuff about, you know, especially American Revolution, I think, oh, that would be so cool to include. I can't wait till I can teach that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, Yeah, we're going to change up how we think about the American Revolution. And that's a fantastic way to go. (laughs) All right.